Welcome to episode 91 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor of the magazine. One of the things Brits love is poking around in historic houses, and artist houses are particularly popular. Look at Charleston, the epicentre of the Bloomsbury Group in Sussex, or Jarman's Prospect Cottage in Dungeness, or Turner's House in Chiswick, or Hogarth's House near Richmond. At the beginning of November, Gainsborough's House in Sudbury will open, and yesterday the magnificent Leighton House in Holland Park reopened at an £8 million redevelopment. Leighton House was the studio home of the eminent Victorian artist and president of the Royal Academy, Frederick Lord Leighton. And just a few minutes away, Sanborn House, the family home of punch cartoonist Edward Linley, Sanborn, also opened. Now, I live quite near Leighton House and walk past it a lot, and it's been rather dismal seeing it under wraps for so long, but no longer. It's now burst out of its shell in all its glory and has been beautifully and sensitively transformed. We're delighted to have with us the senior curator of both Leighton House and Sanborn House, Daniel Robbins, who's an internationally renowned expert on 19th century architecture and design. Hello, Daniel. Hi. Hi, Charlotte. Also with us today is the Iranian artist Shahzad Gaffari, who's hand-painted an 11-foot-high mural around the curved wall of a brand new helical staircase across three floors. It's the first time a contemporary artist has ever been commissioned by Leighton House, so we're delighted to welcome her as well. Hello. Hi there. Well, it's wonderful to have you both on. And the first question we have to ask Charlotte, isn't it, is why we weren't invited to the opening party. I'm afraid, Ed, I cannot pretend otherwise that those opening events have happened. Anyway. Daniel is speechless. <laughs> I am. I'm just trying to think of some <laughs> explanation, but it's not happening. It's wonderful to have you both on. Now, I've been to both houses and they're spectacular. They really are living, breathing representations of Victorian life. Walking into San Juan House in particular is like stepping straight back in time as it's been faithfully restored as a family home. Tourists are absolutely going to love these houses. And what's really interesting about these redevelopments and restorations is that you're really breathing life back into the Holland Park Circle of Artists. But before we get on to them, Daniel, can you remind our listeners who Lord Leighton was and explain why this house is so exotic and remarkable? Well, so at the time of his death in 1896, Leighton had really cultivated an extraordinary position as the president of the Royal Academy and the most eminent artist of the age, and had really transformed the idea of what what an artist should be. He was born in 1830, had a very extraordinarily cosmopolitan upbringing, only returning to this country in his late 20s, and his debut picture at the Royal Academy was this astonishing success where Prince Albert persuaded Queen Victoria to buy it on the first day of the exhibition and and Leighton was heralded as the the future of British art. He was extraordinarily capable in all kinds of ways and whatever people thought of him as a painter, which wasn't always universally well regarded, but he was seen as a sort of wonderful ambassador um, for artists and the arts and so that was recognised as his, in his election as the president of the Royal Academy and his house was always seen as part of his legacy, part of his creativity had been expressed through his house and it came to sort of embody how a great artist should live and work and his collections expressed the range of his interests as an artist and the house was regularly featured in press. It's a sort of forerunner of Hello magazine, the formula of 
using your house as a means of projecting an idea of your success um, and taste. And so at the time of his death, what should happen to the house became a great subject of debate. There was a thought it should be the permanent official home of the president of the Royal Academy. But the fact it only has one surprisingly modest little bedroom was a bit of a deterrent on that front. And in fact, when it was attempted to be sold after his death, it didn't sell at auction. So it quite quickly became a museum. I wonder why it was never, um, why he never had more bedrooms. He never thought about the resale value. No, I don't think he was particularly concerned about the resale value. He was concerned with the creation of, of a house that, as I say, reflected, and particularly in the construction of the Arab Hall, the most celebrated, famous interior within the house. And it's very noticeable that when he built the Arab Hall 10 years after he'd first started constructing the house, the amount of interest in it hugely grew because he'd created this thing that really there was nothing quite like it. Some of our listeners might not have been to Leighton House. So can you just describe what it is that makes it so extraordinary with all the tiles and mosaics and, and you know, the huge spaces downstairs that perhaps explain why there is this one small bedroom? Yeah, so as you walk down Holland Park Road, there's nothing about the exterior of the house to particularly draw your attention. And in fact, that was what was said when Leighton lived here. The remarkable thing, though, was the sequence and series of interiors that unfolded as you went through the front door. The house was was the result of 30 years of almost constant embellishment and extension. So what had started relatively modest in scale ended up as this private palace of art, as it was described. So you moved from his drawing room, which was hung with landscapes by, not by himself, but by artists he admired, including Corro and Constable. You then moved into the dining room where we're sitting, which was where he displayed his collection largely of Isnik ceramics and pottery. And then you proceeded upstairs to the silk room, which was a gallery space where works by his contemporaries were on display. And it was all very, the relationship between the house and its contents was very sophisticatedly considered and was all considered as a piece. And all of this culminated in opening out into his enormous studio on the first floor. So as you cross is landing into this enormous studio, you can't help but be kind of swayed by the impact of that space. And on the other side of that landing is his little modest bedroom tucked away out of sight, almost to sort of deny any idea of a kind of conventional domestic setup. And that's so interesting that this little modest space is really the only private room in the house. The rest of it is all about display and presentation. And you almost have the sense as Leighton got up in the morning and walked out of his bedroom that this kind of sense of taking on the performance of the great artist, this house becomes the stage on which he acted out that. And people who sort of didn't like him said there was something artificial about him, that they never felt they got behind this extraordinary you know, multilingual, hugely cultivated figure. But he was quite a pioneer, wasn't he, going off to Egypt and Syria and places and Turkey and bringing back all these unbelievably beautiful tiles and carpets and all sorts of things. And that partly explains why you looked for contemporary artists from those regions. So tell us about the commission and then we'd love to talk to you, Shahzad, about what you've done because it is spectacular. This has been a project very long in the making of how to entirely, re well, remove entirely the 1950s infill and then wholesale refurbish the 20s piece and then add a new rotunda containing a lift and a new helical staircase. What is a helical staircase? So it's helical staircase is not quite a spiral staircase. So a spiral staircase comes to a point 
in its centre, where a helical staircase has a void in its centre. So from the beginning, and it's a beautifully designed staircase in itself, we thought that there might here be an opportunity to, as Leighton had done, work with artists to as part of the creation of his house. So it was a collaborative effort and that the form of this new rotunda is quite modest externally and again in keeping with the rest of the house as far as that's concerned and so again there was an opportunity to echo the sensation of entering what apparently is a fairly neutral looking space but internally is enriched the thought was that this is at the opposite end of the building to the arab hall and so this could potentially respond so in some way express all of those elements that make Leighton House what it is, but at the same time say something about the future of the museum and the, this new chapter on which, which is unfolding. So we first, I think, looked at 50 artists and in the end 10 were asked to make a submission. And it was one of those wonderful things that when we received Shahzad's submission, it seemed to so understand what the aspiration, what we, the aspiration we had was and to take it further and kind of add to that idea. You worked in a very small space and you had to be up that scaffolding for about nine weeks, didn't you? So tell us about what you can see. When I was invited to give a proposal for Leighton House, I thought I should come and see the place and, and uh, really feel the space and everything. So that's what I did. And I came and once I walked in and, and saw those tiles and uh, ceramics and everything, like I, I just made that connection. I was inspired by Rumi, which is a Persian poet uh, from 13th century. Everything was there for me to pick up. Like the colors were already here. So the turquoise color I took from the tiles. Those uh, burnt oranges, dark browns, it was from the exterior of the building, the bricks outside. And also you can see lots of gold color in this side. And I thought it's a like uh, in response, we will have the silver. Uh, which is more from future, like, uh, and actually it acts like a mirror which reflects whatever is inside the house. So this is how I've picked up the colors and the texture is kind of, it, I, I wanted to give that history. So it's like a wall which has been painted over and over again. And when you tear one part, another colors reveal itself and it has a, a different story. So it's like a old and now and futures and the form is actually it's it's the words come from the poem and they they built actually like a double helix which raised from the base of the staircase and goes upward towards the skylight and each of the parts represents east and west and at the top it, there is a reunion of them both and actually they form in dna form and uh which represents a new existence, a new maybe generation which will appreciate East, West, different cultures and embraces uh, them. So uh, that's all about what, what I can say about oneness. Is it your first mural? Yes, it is. That must have been a learning curve for you as well. <laughs> Actually, my work is more in, on large canvases. So for me, it was challenging, but still it was very, very like a great experience as well. 
And it's got a wonderful flowing feeling. I mean, it's very, very beautiful. I mean, the whole house is, I mean, for, for listeners who've been to the house before, it is absolutely mind-blowing walking in now. Because you've taken away that old 50s building, you walk in and you can suddenly see the garden and the beautiful cast iron pillars of the studio that were boxed in before. And you've also dug a basement and put Leighton's drawings in. That's right. So Leighton was really seen as one of the great draftsmen of that of that era. And he hoarded, he kept all of his drawings really from the earliest days of his career, almost childhood drawings, through to the drawings he was making uh, in the days before he, he died. And drawing was absolutely fundamental to him as an artist. It's a sort of antithesis of the idea of the artist sort of, you know, just working away at their canvas and somehow a picture emerging that's then altered and changed. So after his death, in this weird circumstance where everything else that he had was sold at Christie's by his two sisters, they had sold all of his drawings to the Fine Arts Society, who began to sell off groups of them to the British Museum and to the V&A and to private individuals. They then in the, uh, sold the rest of the contents of the house so well that they were then in a position to support the establishment of the, the new museum and went back to the Fine Arts Society and bought all of the drawings back again. So that we have 700 sheets and always have had 700 sheets of Leighton's drawings, which is an extraordinary resource. And I don't think there are many artists that have in a single collection that quantity of drawings. So one of the drivers of the project was to create a, a dedicated drawings gallery for works on paper and, and drawings in the new basement of the house. And so what we have as a first exhibition is a selection of, if you like, the best of a representative collection of those of those drawings. They're absolutely and they are beautiful, beautiful. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Su surprisingly exquisite. And then tell us about the main exhibition space. Leighton House is part of a bigger story. Uh, we're surrounded by a set of unique purpose-built studio houses, all constructed in the same period at the end of the, of the 19th century. And previously, there's never been a space to tell that story, which in fact makes kind of more sense of Leighton House than just seeing it in isolation. And so we created um, additional gallery space and displays. And as you were describing, the view now out of the new wing uh, takes in those neighbouring houses. So there's a much more immediate visual connection with them. So for the opening exhibition, what we've done is bring together uh, a collection of, the, of work by these neighbouring artists and include photographs by Juliet Margaret Cameron, who was part of uh, one of the Pattle sisters, and her sister lived in Little Holland House with walls, uh, murals painted inside it by G.F. Watts, who, in this famous phrase, came to stay for the weekend and was there for 20 years as the sort of artist in residence. And what the exhibition shows is... Um, the sort of diversity of the work that these artists were producing, how many of them, let's say, found their artistic niche, they found their market and were quite unashamedly just producing versions of the same picture pretty much the entirety of their career, but amassing great critical and financial success on the basis of them. And also, let's not forget the crafts, because you've also commissioned new furniture. I think Luke Hughes has done some copies of HSN's original bookcases and dining room dresser, and you've also got some Jordanian craftsmen coming in or craftspeople to come in to design new furniture. It was the same sort of spirit as, the, as working with Shahzad that we wanted as people first entered the museum for those components that make up the story of the house so uh, to be presented. So there's work by Leighton, there's a case introduces him through, through a group of objects including his ceremonial sword and 
clearly the question of why an artist needs a ceremonial sword <laughs> arises. And then as a counterpart to that, um, we've commissioned through the Turquoise Mountain Foundation that the king originally set up, uh, was instrumental in setting up to work in Afghanistan to try and save craft traditions, uh, are now working with displaced Syrian makers in Jordan. And that connection with Syria, particularly where the majority of the tiles that line the walls of the Arab Hall were, were from Damascus. It seemed a perfect opportunity, again, to find a collaboration that would result in something that both refers to and uh, is about the history of the house, but expresses that in a, in a contemporary way. And they're absolutely beautiful pieces inlaid with a motif that's derived from one that uh, is on a Syrian chest front in the original house. It's so beautifully done. And can we just talk quickly about Sanborn House, which is very, very different. That's more like a dunk into a proper Victorian family house, isn't it? But it's quite extraordinary. I mean, tourists are going to absolutely love it. Yeah, well, it's, it is an extraordinary place. It's from the outside, a sort of absolutely standard middle-class Victorian terraced house. But Sambon, um, particularly early in his career, very much aspired to be taken seriously as an artist. So he was a black and white illustrator, principally for Punch, but undertook a whole range of commissions. And so what's great about our two houses is you, is you have him at the kind of lowest rung of the uh, artistic establishment and Leighton at the absolute top of that ladder. And at Sanborn House, you see Sanborn trying to ape the studio houses that were across the other side of Holland Park, but without the budgets and quite the means to, to do that. When they moved in, all the papers were William Morris papers, um, and then he, through second-hand store, uh, house clearances, all kinds of sources, he put together this, this collection that very much apes the sort of interiors, as I say, that his richer and grander neighbouring artists were able to create. When you were redeveloping Leighton House, I just wondered how deliberate it was that, that you really restored the sense of what it was like to live there. Because I was just, you know, I, I mean, I always think it's such a shame that the Guggenheim Museum in Venice just, it really, I felt really ripped the soul out of it when they took away how Peggy Guggenheim used to live to open it up more to art. And it just somehow lost its spirit. And you've gone the art completely in the other direction with this. Yeah, because... Um... All the original contents of the house were sold after Leighton's death and entirely dispersed. And so for much of the 20th century, while there was a collection here and the collection began to be formed of Leighton's work, it kind of was unclear. These rooms were kind of empty spaces with odd pictures hanging in them. And it really completely lost the sense of a domestic environment and the idea anybody actually kind of lived here. Between 2008 and 10, we did a big restoration of the historic house and that was called Closer to Home because... The idea was to really make it that take that big step towards presenting it as the interiors that Leighton knew and to furnish them very much in line where possible by repatriating his exact collection of paintings and works that have so we've been successful in, in doing that. And then in the most recent project, we've got two rooms back because the functions that they had of the reception desk and the ticketing and the shop are now all in the new wing. So the suite of rooms in the house itself is now entirely complete. So you experience the house much more fully. You've even taken the spotlights out, I noticed. So in the dining room, you can really imagine what it's like to have dinner in there. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Where you're sitting now, indeed, although our listeners can't see that. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Lighting, I think, is always a weirdly overlooked thing in the presentation of historic houses and we're so used to overlighting everything and think it's it's not right if you can't see every painting and the detail of everything and and it actually this house when you turn all the lights on off 
you understand that um, it was really built with the idea that daylight reflects off all these gilded surfaces and, and the tiles, and it's much more atmospheric if, if it's experienced with, without all those lights on. Now, what's a local council doing running a museum like this? Well, Kensington, Chelsea, uh, is a different order of local authority. Um, <laughs> no, so, we, so this project has been uh, absolutely only achievable by a collaboration between the council as, as the owner of the building and its responsibilities for the care of the building, the Heritage Lottery, National Lottery Heritage Fund, as it's now called, and then the Friends of the Museum. Um, and the Friends raised uh, just about £2 million pounds towards this project, which is an enormous... So, so without that external funding, of course, the council would have found it very difficult to embark on this, um, on this project. But the council has been extraordinarily supportive of, of all the time I've been here of the museum and, and particularly understands and wants to see how... And really, this is what, what Shahzad's work sort of is almost a totem for of how the space here and this place can become somewhere that reaches out to all the communities living within within the borough and, and further afield and creates a place that you know isn't just the home of a long dead Victorian painter but has a you know a relevance and a life that's much more um, pertinent to now. Presumably it's paid entry but also you can hire the house for parties probably a great party venue. It, it is, and, and kind of always has been. So, I mean, when Leighton was here, he, he frequently used it to, to entertain in. So um, the new wing, so that's the ground floor space, the cafe space, and the basement where the drawings are, is actually going to be free to enter. And this is all about trying to break down the idea that Leighton House might be somewhere you might visit kind of once and something you might be invited to a party 10 years later to make it some, somewhere that is more accessible and that people... That we have the wonderful cafe space, and I shouldn't say the cafe space is the driver for all of this, but it, it is a wonderful space looking out over the garden. And so we want to sort of try and make the, the museum much more somewhere that people um, get used to visiting and, and meeting friends at and enjoying, and that it introduces new audiences to us through that. Well, I am thrilled that it's reopened because it is quite near where I live. And it's just, it's, well, I will definitely be dropping in a lot. Can you stop <laughs> pretending that you live in Kensington? Charlotte? I know I don't. It's really but I, embarrassing. That, well, that's why I have to flog past it a lot to get to Kensington. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll put the coffee on now and yeah. uh, await your arrival. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. And, and Shahzad, congratulations on your work. It's fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, we're going to be talking about poetry and its increasing importance as a source of solace in times of uncertainty. We love poetry on this podcast. We've had Dominic West on reading poems, William Seacott talking about his poetry pharmacy, and Juliet Stevenson telling us about her favourite poetry festival. Now the Sunday Times best-selling author, Rachel Kelly, who's also a tireless mental health campaigner, has put together a wise and soulful selection of poems compiled in a new book called You'll Never Walk Alone. Rachel will be here to talk about that next week, and with her will be Pele Cox, not the footballer. In fact, it's a woman. She's been poet-in-residence at both Tate and the Royal Academy, and has also completed a monumental verse inscription, the longest in the West, along a wall of the new Chelsea Barracks. So if you don't fail to tune in for a bit of soul-nurturing and to be persuaded to turn to your poetry books immediately, 
It's your loss. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com, where you'll also find the latest edition of the magazine, as well as be able to listen to our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette, talking to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, and we'd also like to hear if there's anything you'd like to hear us profiling or changing. So please send me a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Thank you very much indeed for listening and see you next week. Goodbye. Take care. Bye.